Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. In a world of AI bros, young men on fire with the commercial possibilities for this new technology, Fei-Fei Li stands apart. Not only is she one of the few women with decades of experience in the resurgent field, Li is also an immigrant from China who's lived with and cared for her ailing mother for much of her life. Hello, youth, she is not. And isn't that exactly the kind of person you would want to grapple with the possibilities and pitfalls of artificial intelligence? It's exactly what the Stanford professor does in her new memoir slash AI explainer, The Worlds I See. She's coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. I remember hearing whispers about one of Faith Bailey's great creations in the mid-2010s. ImageNet, a vast catalog of images pulled from the Internet and categorized by her teams at Princeton and then at Stanford, turned out to be one of the crucial mechanisms for the AI takeoff of the last decade. ImageNet scale allowed neural networks to fulfill their potential, which ushered in so much of what you see happening around you in the technology world. But Lee's story is not only her work. She immigrated to the U.S. at 15 from China, helping her parents get by and winning a scholarship to Princeton. Since then, she's pursued her science relentlessly, trying to make sense of the fundamental problems of vision while building the models to study them. She tells her story in her new book, The Worlds I See, Curiosity, Exploration, and Discovery at the Dawn of AI, and it is a beautiful corrective to the bloodless corporatism and warmed-over apocalypticism that's engulfed the field. Welcome to the show, Feifei. Thank you, Alexis. I'm very excited to be invited. Yeah. Um, we're going to get to your life story in one sec, but given that you've been so central to so much that has happened in AI, and many people have been trying to process what happened at OpenAI with Sam Altman getting pushed out and then returning. I mean, how did you, an AI insider with students who've gone to work at many different places, including very prominently at OpenAI, but who's chosen to stay in academia, I mean, how did you process the turmoil and what you think it says about the future of AI? Yeah, um, Alexis, look, I um, I have tremendous respect to the the 
the technology leaders today in open AI and many uh, many uh, uh, places. We have since the the ChatGPT release almost exactly one year ago. We have seen a inflection of this technology, and from an you call me an AI insider. It's a nice way of uh, uh, you know concealing my my uh, seniority. <laughs> um, but ha- having been AI for so long. I do recognize this is an inflection point for two reasons. One is the, the the power of this technology, especially large language model based technology, is reached to a point that it can be generally used by consumers as well as business, and that is a very big achievement of this technology. Many generations of AI. Scientists have been dreaming about this moment. The second moment of、uh, the second reason it's a inflection point is the public awakening, especially policy world awakening, thanks to what has happened a year ago. And I think it's under this backdrop that anything that happens、um, in the AI world gets magnified and.、Um, Like I said, I have tremendous respect to the technologists involved in OpenAI, and whatever they went through,、um, frankly, might be a more or less typical story of just the ups and downs of、mm. uh, the Silicon Valley world. But it's well, magnified, right? I mean, at least some of it, though, right? Kind of strikes to the heart of the ethics of the field, right? Because some, at least from the outside reporting, it has been that you know. There is a faction inside OpenAI that wants to develop this in a more or less corporate setting with traditional kind of profit incentives, and there's another faction that wanted to continue with what they view as the original nonprofit mission of OpenAI to develop this technology in a very considered and、uh, and thoughtful way,、um, without regard for you know if it's going to make money. I mean, do you see those as two kind of branching paths, two different ways to develop these technologies, and nonprofit and kind of what、uh, society centered, or or a more corporate way? Yeah, let's talk about that. I I think this is actually a worthy topic, and and I, frankly, just with OpenAI itself, I don't know what happened. There's a lot of speculation, but I think your question is an extremely important and fundamental one, which is how do we develop AI, especially as someone who's been through this for for quite a few years. It's it's a question I. Dearly, dearly care about, and I firmly believe that we should develop AI with the human-centered framework. And here we can dive deeper, but in general, it means it、uh, keeps the human responsibility and human consequences of this technology in the center of creation, deployment, and governance. And、uh, I do, you know, I come from the public sector, right? I I work in academia. I firmly believe that both nonprofit, public sector, and private sector w- should play a role in human-centered AI. I don't think being benevolent to the society is necessarily the opposite of for-profit-driven、um, efforts, because in our country.、Um, Capitalistic efforts have brought a lot of goodness, and I don't think it's it's that kind of binary black and white. I think a lot of good efforts can happen in private sector, but I absolutely think private、uh, 
public sector needs to play a critical role in ushering the human-centered AI. And we're going to come back to this definition of human-centered AI as keeps the human responsibility and consequences in the center mm-hmm. of the creation, deployment, and governance um, in AI in a sec. I do, I do want people to know a little bit more about you. I mean, they, they may know that you're the Sequoia Capital Professor of Computer Science at Stanford University, founding director of the Stanford Institute for Human-Centered AI. But when you were 15, you were uh, a, a girl who had just arrived in the United States uh, for the first time and to, to stay permanently. Yeah, of all places, Persephone, New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> what was yeah. it like? Um, I have a very typical immigrant story, and, and I want to underscore the word typical because there are millions and millions of people in America who are immigrants or their family come from an immigration background and you know they get they come here however age and they land in a strange land especially navigating the first few years of learning the language and for people like my parents that never came through right they still don't speak much of uh, English but I managed as a teenager to learn English, to um, uh, familiarize myself in a new in a new home, and uh, work really hard. So it was it it's it's typical in that sense, and of course it's unique because every one of us have a unique personal journey. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's important to to uh, speak almost on behalf of so many immigrants that humble beginning and mm-hmm. the journey since then. Yeah, how did you all make ends meet? Like, what was the work that you largely did in Persephone, New Jersey? Yeah, well, in the first few years, it was just making ends meet and, uh, you know, cashier jobs. My, I think my dad was at some moment working in a warehouse for, for assembling PCs. And eventually, a few years in, I think, just right around the time I got into college, um, due to circumstances of my, my, especially my mother's health, we decided we need to, um, just, just, uh, run a very small dry cleaner shop. And that was my, uh, seven year, um, um, career outside of being a student is the is the um I call myself the CEO of the dry cleaner <laughs> shop. <laughs> yeah. That's right. And at the same time you're there, it's just you, you're an only child, you're with your parents and you're working your way both to learning English, but also you're a very good math and science student and you encounter a high school teacher who you in part dedicate this book to uh, Bob Sabella. Yes, yes. I, what, did, what did he mean for you? Right. So so f- uh, Bob Sabella was my first math teacher turned into a lifelong friend and uh, his entire family, uh, his wife, his sons, his grandkids are, are just to me, they're part of my American family. Mm-hmm. Um, for a lonely teenager learning a new country, a new language, navigating a public high school in uh, in New Jersey. He was my mentor. He was my support. He was my friend. And I could not have imagined how I would have done without 
the kind of generosity and compassion. And really, frankly, Bob is a tough love teacher, so <laughs> <laughs> that kind of you know pushing. And so I, I this is why I dedicate this book partially to him, but I also want to dedicate this book, embodied in Bob,、uh, Sabella. To so many unsung heroes of our American society, especially those public school teachers and those people who have demonstrated the the value of this country's compassion tolerance,、um, because for me, I was a new American, and this is the value that was inspiring to me and that supported me, and I want to. You know, embody that myself and pay forward, just like、uh, Mr. Sabella did to me. Yeah, I found that so fascinating in your book. In fact, I screenshotted one of the pages and sent it to a couple of friends, saying, "Like, this is such a fascinating perspective." And I'm just gonna; these are your words. You know,、mm-hmm. even after decades steeped in the same tensions as everyone else—partisanship, cultural fault lines, election cycles, and all the rest—my deepest understanding of this country didn't come from the news or some polemicist op-ed or even a textbook. It came from the privilege of knowing the Sabellas, who so exemplified the humanity that I value most about this place. It's a spirit that, to me anyway, still feels distinctly. American, and this has found you know. If you go read your congressional testimony, if anyone、mm-hmm. is out here, basically、uh, <laughs> is testified before Congress. I think you actually see a little bit of that in the way that you describe why you think the U.S. needs to be a leader in AI in the world. Yes, absolutely. Especially AI. This is such an intensely debated topic. There's so much extreme rhetoric. There's so much hyperbole. There is like extreme utopia and extreme dystopia. I, my journey and my values are deeply, deeply rooted in humans, in individuals, in human dignity, self-respect, you know,、um, and freedom, liberty, and generosity. And that came to me through people, not through textbooks.、Mm. And and I wanted, I want to continue to carry that as an AI technologist. Yeah. We're talking with Dr. Fei Fei Li. She's the Sequoia Capital Professor of Computer Science at Stanford University, founding director of the Stanford Institute for Human-Centered AI. Got a new memoir out called "The Worlds I See." We'd love to hear from you. What are your questions for Fei Fei Li about AI? You can give us a call. The number is eight six six seven three three six seven eight six. Forum at kqed.org, or you can go to our digital community on Discord. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera *Innocence* takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariaho's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of *Innocence*, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots, because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary.
Welcome back to Forum. We're talking with Stanford computer science professor Fei-Fei Li. She has a new memoir out called The Worlds I See. Um, Fei-Fei, you know, so you go to Princeton, mm -hmm. then you arrive at Caltech. So you leave Parsippany, you go over to Princeton. <laughs> you, you do great there. You arrive at Caltech as a graduate student where you become part of this lineage of researchers who really want to study intelligence and brains, mm -hmm. but also build models to help us understand it. So you focused on vision, signals coming in as photons, how those become our experience of the world for sighted people. And here's how you put it in the book. Vision, therefore, is not merely an application of our intelligence. It is, for all practical purposes, synonymous with our intelligence. Can you talk to me about what you meant there? Yeah, well, so my scientific journey has always been inspired by physics. That's my first love, absolutely first love. Even in the middle of Chinese restaurant and dry cleaner shops, where, what guides me is my passion for physics for, for my early uh, years. What physics has taught me is the, the pursuit of North Star, audacious questions that scientists dare to ask, even though they have no idea what the answer is, such as the boundary of the universe, the beginning <laughs> of space-time, smallest particles in, in the world. And that one thing led to another, led me, inspired me um, to turn my attention to one of the most audacious questions of the universe, in my opinion, towards the end of my college study, which is intelligence, especially high intelligence like humans, right? How do we go from single cell organism into emerged into this human intelligence that can understand and create and interact with such a complex world of things and people mm -hmm. and places? And uh, of all the complexity of intelligence, one um, thread was very fascinating to me is to take what we see, which is extremely complex, high dimensional and, and all that, and turn that into understandable knowledge and close the loop and guide us into interacting with the world. We open our eyes and we see we see the world with so much richness from not just the lighting and the colors, the shades and the shape, but also the 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 um a semantics, the the, the, the richness of what we see, the objects, the people, their expressions, their their body language and, and what's going on or even danger versus joy. And then beyond that, we use what we see to do things, make an omelet or, you know, <laughs> build a, a bridge or drive a car. So all this is the story of intelligence. This is why I see visual intelligence being very much core to intelligence itself. Mm. And if we can model that, it'll get us so much closer to understanding what uh, intelligence is. So a couple things. Um, one reason you seem to really focus on vision is it's also it's effortless for people who have sight, yes. right? I mean, it's just it's this kind of incredible computational task that when you want a computer to do it requires you know a lot of computational power, but but humans um, and other animals and things can do this like um, as if they're not doing anything. It's not like they're doing a math problem. Mm. Um, 
what's the kind of definition of intelligence that we're using here? Because people who've lost their sight, of course, you know, or who were born without it, have rich intellectual lives. They're Absolutely. You know, really yeah. smart people. So what's the kind of more specific layer of intelligence or, or definition that you're thinking about in this? Well, good question, Alexis. First of all, intelligence is very complex and uh, high dimensional. I absolutely agree with you. Without sight itself, uh, people are perfectly intelligent in many dimensions, even more so. So I'm not equating vision with the entirety of intelligence, just like I'm not equating um audio, you know, um, mm -hmm, right. or, or language only with the entirety of intelligence. Here I use visual intelligence as an opening into the greater question of intelligence mm -hmm. because vision is connected to language, is connected to touch, is connected to comprehension, it's connected to reasoning, it's connected to decision making mm -hmm. and all that. But um, you know, my I mean my colleagues overdoing uh natural language processing, uh, starting with language, use that as an mm -hmm. opening into intelligence. But you see, I mean, whether you're looking at GPT-4 or potentially Gemini and all that, you're going to see the convergence of multimodality. So so it's, it's all, you know, related. Yeah. It is fascinating that one of the connections that you found between vision and other things are the kind of categories that we use, and this is kind of like a fascinating aspect that I think is a little bit underappreciated um, by by people in the way that you've applied this whole body of scientific knowledge about thingness <laughs> to uh, to artificial intelligence development. Yeah, and that's uh, um, actually in hindsight, ImageNet is also the first project that connects vision with language, even though it's a very impoverished language, it's not full sentences, but it's semantics and labels and categories. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't think category is the only way of representing the the richness of the visual world. In fact, it doesn't, like the entire 3D shape and texture of a, an object is not captured in one name or, or label. But it's, it's also, but it's is a very rich and comprehensive way. And using that to map out, you know, at least uh, during the image that time, the first time, the, 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 the scale of the visual world was, was an approach that was, mm. you know, um, not done before, and it showed a uh, very profound uh, impact. Yeah. Let's talk about that moment because it is this, you know, it occurred before a lot of people who are now paying attention to artificial intelligence were paying attention. So let's talk about why the creation of ImageNet marked a turning point in the development of AI. What, what was ImageNet and what could it do and how was it used? Yeah. So ImageNet was conceived around 2007 and uh, the first uh, milestone was finished in 2009 after three years and 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 uh, and then two, three years later w what we did is to 
so first of all, ImageNet is a training and benchmark data set, a very large scale training and benchmark data set for AI uh, that was finished in 2009. It consisted of 15 million images cataloged across 22,000 English lexicons uh, depicting the, the visual world of mostly objects and things such as chair, microwave, and all that, of course, cats. <laughs> and uh, and uh, what we did is after we finished it in 2009, we open sourced it into a major international competition for researchers across the world to use. Uh, we call it ImageNet Challenge to challenge um, our field, frankly, AI field, to use this big amount of data to work on one of the toughest problem at that time of uh, uh, AI, which is image classification or categorization. And uh, what happened in 2012 was one of the entries was uh, led by Professor Jeff Hinton and his students. And um, and uh, they won that year's challenge using a very traditional in 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 our uh, timeline, uh, classic algorithm called Neural yeah, Network. I think one of your students described it as ancient. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. Because uh, it was developed in the uh, 1980s. And, uh, and that one hands down that image, that challenge, and really opened the floodgate of data combined with deep learning combined with uh, GPU computing. What led to ImageNet was actually a very interesting era. It was 2006. I was literally first year assistant professor at Princeton. And uh, I belonged to the first generation of PhD students trained at the turn of the century with the concept of machine learning in AI. Before us, AI was still, you know, the, it just came out of a winter of, mm -hmm. say, expert systems, logic-based reasoning. But we are the first generation of students who are really using computer programs to um, learn algorithms that are trained on data. But data was a second class citizen because there aren't that much, there weren't that much data around. We use very small data set, whether you work in language or in vision, we're using very, very tiny data set. But around that time, you know, um, early 2000s, another great thing happened in the world, which was internet. <laughs> internet brought data, you know, uh, especially in vision, we've got digital cameras at that time that uh, created digital photos that got uploaded into the internet and got cataloged by various uh, databases. And uh, that was kind of a epiphany for me as I was working on this really hard problem of visual intelligence and trying to understand how we make machines to see. And it dawned on me that we are not seeing it from a data centric point of view. Mm -hmm. And there's some mathematical foundation to that because at the end of the day, AI algorithms task is to what we call generalize. We, we learn from a bunch of uh, things we have seen and we need to, um, in the, in, we need to take a novel, um, image or novel data and be able to, you know, apply what we have learned, and that ability is called generalization. And I, it dawned on me and my students that a data-driven, data-centric approach would um, improve generalization in a way that the field had under underappreciated. Hmm. And that was really the beginning of ImageNet. It was a, 
a fairly um, um, unconventional approach. You know that was not necessarily supported by everybody, but we went about it, and uh, yeah. Yeah, and when in this 2012 entry uh, was was made, it really kind of revealed how powerful neural networks could be with that data centric approach, which. You know, as more and more data has been generated, it it opens up, and you know, more computational power has become available. Um, it has really been a, a watershed moment that I think is now recognized um, quite broadly. And you know, one of the key members of that team um, on AlexNet, as you mentioned, was Jeff Hinton, who's yes. a legend field. Jeff Hinton, who then um, went to Google and then left, um, largely to you know because he felt as if the development of AI was getting to a dangerous inflection point, another inflection point, but this one, one that he wasn't sure he wanted to support. Um, how do you feel about his criticisms and do you share them? Yeah, so first of all, I I love and admire Jeff. I was actually in Toronto a, a month ago and uh, had a public uh, discussion with him mm. on this very topic. Um, so um, I I understand Jeff's concern and Jeff represents a, a uh, you know one portion of our population and including technologists who are concerned about the very intellectual question about sentientness and so on and as a scholar living my life in a university right now I actually appreciate that because as an intellectual topic it, it is a worthy topic just like where is the boundary of universe and the beginning of space time? These are all worthy topics, and I respect that. Mm -hmm. But in my public discussion with Jeff, I did um, propose a, a different perspective to supplement his, which is that in addition to this very intellectual debate of sentientness and where AI is going, we actually have potential catastrophic societal risks brought by this technology, as well as its opportunities. And I think it's very, very important we recognize, recognize the more pressing and urgent um, risks as well as opportunities, and don't just solely focus on one intellectual topic, which is the sentientness and, and conscious machines. Which to uh, you feels too far away. Relatively speaking, yes, especially if you press me to say, well, compared to, say, disinformation's disruption to democracy, job, job, labor market disruption, bias and privacy infringement, yes, that relatively is far away. But if I pressed you to say how many years away? <laughs> The, the, that's a that's a fair question. I, I'm I'm a, a scholar. I, I take all questions. <laughs> Alexis, here's the thing. I like you said. I came from a lineage of both cognitive and AI researchers, right? I don't know. We have a perfect definition of awareness and consciousness and sentientness, to be honest. And when we don't have a clear definition, I don't know how to where to put the boat goalpost. And that's that's why it's difficult for me to answer your question. Mm. I think there is a degree of um, 
I, I I hate to put the word awareness, but obviously our language models have demonstrated emergent behaviors、um, that are very powerful, and have demonstrated learning behaviors that are very powerful, and even can say things like "I am self-aware." But I don't know if we yet have the right measure to interrogate that kind of claim. Because a parrot can also claim I am self-aware, and how do you interrogate the degree and the the the, the depth of that? I personally don't know yet, and I ask my philosopher friends around. I think this is a that's why I say it's a worthy intellectual topic that we should be studying. Hmm. Let's、um, bring in Joanne in Hercules. And how do we? Hey, Joanne. Um, can you turn down your radio just a bit? I think you've got a question. Yeah. Of that, I personally don't know. We'll go, we'll go back to、uh, to Joanne. I mean, I think one of the things that、um, people have asked is,、uh, you know, like Jeff Hinton says, it's hard to see how you can prevent the bad actors from using AI for bad things. So, how do you see how to govern this AI to to try to do that? That's a great question. In fact, I think that is a pressing and urgent question. So,、um, humanity have always had a complex relationship with the tools we invented. In fact, given every point of history, from you know the beginning of discovering fire to steam engine to electricity to cars to today AI, we've always invented tools out of the need to to improve our lives at work. Yet we also create a double-edged sword to hurt each other, to harm、mm-hmm. each other, to inflict pain, and to even bring unintended consequences. So the governance of AI is one of the most important daunting tasks for 21st century, and I have complete agreement. But I, I am, while it's very hard, and I recognize that, I am still hopeful of. Human resilience and、mm-hmm. our collective efforts and 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 hopefully wisdom is that there is a way to govern it.、Um, we've we've dealt with so many technologies that seem so daunting and scary, yet we continue to to、um, utilize it for good and to you know put guardrails around them. And there are a lot of complexity in that. I mean, let me just say, Biden's EO uh, about uh, what three weeks ago. I'm not saying that's perfect at all, but at least it's a example of、um, the relatively nuanced approach to AI governance. Because in that EO, it touches on safety topic, it touches on guardrails, but it also touches touched on. Uh, partnership as well as investment in public sector, and this is the 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 indication of the the richness of a AI governance model. Right.、Yeah. We're talking with Fei Fei Li. She's the Sequoia Capital Professor of Computer Science at Stanford University, founding director of the Stanford Institute for Human Centered AI. She has a new memoir out called The Worlds. I see. We're going to get to more of your calls and questions for Fei-Fei Li after the break. You can try the email forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with Fei-Fei Lee, founding director of the Stanford Institute for Human-Centered AI. Got a new memoir, The Worlds I See. She's the Sequoia Capital Professor of Computer Science at Stanford. Um, wanted to ask you about this. This weekend, the New York Times had a story on the birth of AI. It's called Who's Who Behind the Dawn of AI. And they didn't mention uh, women, I think any women at all, um, and Kara Swisher called it out on X, the service formerly known as as Twitter. W- what did you think, Feifei? Uh, what do I think about the New York Times article? Yeah, yeah, or just the way that writing the history in a way that might not acknowledge uh, all the contributions equally. I got to be honest, Alex, as I was very disappointed by New York Times, but I also feel so familiar with this, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, throughout human history, women are written out of the textbooks of science, technology, and many other fields. And uh, women in AI, myself included, are not the first ones receiving this kind of treatments. Uh, there has been so many blatant Big stories like the the, the, the the co-discovery of DNA, Franklin Rosalind, as well as just people without even their names remembered have been um, written out of history book. I am disappointed because it's 2023 mm-hmm. and because in the field of AI, the issue of uh, ethics and uh, human centeredness is so, is so prominent. And New York Times is not a random media uh, company. And to have that kind of um, omission of women is really, frankly, I don't know how to find an excuse for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting, too, because it is... It looks to me like they're trying to do a first draft of history, and if you write all the women out of the first draft, that seems like a big, a big problem. Yes, and uh, it continued to be a problem in human history. Yeah. Um, let's talk. Uh, let's take a call. Let's um, go. Let's talk a little bit about the science with uh, Peggy in Sebastopol. Welcome, Peggy. Hi, Peggy. Here I am. Yeah. Oh, great. Wonderful. Um, uh, yeah, I'd like uh, your guest, wonderful program, I'd like your guest to actually pull back and compare the uh, number of neural networks or connections. I know it's a little bit hard to uh, say, 
what's it, the word used, but neural networks in the human brain versus right now. Ah, so kind of like compare sort of the... In, the... in, in artificial intelligence, to compare those numbers. Yeah, sure. Um, Peggy, thank you for for that. Uh, and Feifei, yeah, could you try and you know compare like when somebody looking at something like GPT four, a large language model, or mm-hmm. another um, type of deployed system? Like, how do you try and compare what a human brain can do with what one of those systems can do? Yeah, that's a great question. So. Um, GPT-4 has billions and billions of uh, parameters, and uh, and uh, these parameters are not equate uh, do not equal to the number of neurons in 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 human brain because parameters uh, tend to include not only the number of uh, nodes but also the weights across the mm-hmm. neurons and so on, whereas human brain has ten to the Eleventh uh, neurons and uh, trillions of parameters. So, from that point of view, that human brain, from a size point of view, is still bigger. But it's very, very, very hard to uh, compare because the kind of um, connectivity, the type of connectivity, the kind of signal, you know, human brain is analog and uh, is very different from uh, today's uh, neural network. There are some uh, resemblance, but uh, it's, uh, it is more or less apples and oranges in, in its comparison in terms of the numbers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, let's talk a little bit about sort of specific things that have come up in in your career. One I wanted to talk to you about was about Project Maven, which was a uh, a major news item for a while. It was when Google, during your time there, um, took got won a contract, I suppose is the way to put it, with the, the Pentagon. And it came under attack for inside Google because people worried that it would be used to do, for example, drone targeting or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. how, how have you come to see that event? If people want to read what you said at the time, they can go read it. Uh, but how have you come to see Project Maven and military applications of artificial intelligence? Right. Um, that's a great question. And my book also alluded to that. Back in 2017, 2018, it was the beginning of AI coming of age. You know, AI as a powerful technology is starting to impact the society, but not nearly in the way we're seeing in 2023. But I, as an AI insider, I felt it was the first time we were confronted as the mess of the messiness of this technology. When I say messy, it contrasts math itself, right? One plus one, it's not messy. Whereas technology's human impact, societal mm-hmm. impact was messy. We were around that time, it was right off Cambridge Analytica. It was the first time we see self-driving uh, car injuries. It was the uh, the 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 time the the couple of years that AI bias facial recognition algorithm was hitting the society in a big way, and of course AI weaponization became a topic. All this is under the context of messiness, and whether it was during that time or now, I think my stance has always been that 
we have to take a more nuanced approach. We have to look at this in a responsible and human-centered way. And frankly, we have to communicate this in a responsible way. You know, just because、uh, video analysis of certain data doesn't equate to A, a weaponized drone attack. I, I think it's you know all these should be nuanced. Just just like when GPT says, "I I feel the color red." Does it equate to full consciousness or sentientness?、Mm. No, right. So we have to communicate this in a very、uh, responsible way. So,、oh. but one thing that did I did learn, and,、um, I think I wrote it in a book. Now I don't remember the exact line. <laughs> is that?、Uh, My generation of computer scientists, by and large, did not learn ethics. I did not take any mandatory class of ethics when I was a student, whether undergrad or、um, or a graduate student. But as this technology became more and more powerful, I realized how important it is to enable, empower our students、uh, with that. Multi-dimensional understanding、mm. of the world. So, if you are Stanford computer science students today, undergraduate or graduate students, some of your classes will have embedded ethics in it.、Mm-hmm. We also have ethicists and policy scholars co-teaching with computer scientists on tech and policy, and this is an improvement. It's not enough. But it's a major improvement coming out of that era of 2017, 2018 into 2023, 2024 that we recognize the importance of ethics in tech. So, how would we apply that for something like what's happening with self-driving cars in San Francisco? Right, we have seen、um, major injury. We have, you know, issues with deployment that you know the fire department has brought up. At the same time, we have cars. Um, you know, providing service like within the city.、Um, how how do we apply like an ethical framework to like you know a, a real world problem like that? So great question, Alexis. At Stanford、uh, Human Center AI Institute, we think <laughs> about this all the time.、Uh, one of the the the. Uh, structure we have in our mind is a three concentric ring of um, of uh, actors and and also. Um, people receiving the impact of、uh, of AI, which is individual, community, and society, and for every ring, these、uh, three concentric ring, we should talk about both the responsibility as well as the impact. Right, and every individual has responsibility. As a researcher, technologist, I have responsibility, but I also am at the receiving end of. All these technology and what is my rights? Where's my dignity? Their self-respect. How do I participate in a democratic process to voice that and to try to make a change? And then you enlarge that to community. A community could be a company. It could be a particular group of people.、It、could be a neighborhood. It, it, there we have our own、uh, responsibility as well as the the the.、Um, The impact that the technology has for us, and then of course at the largest level, there's society or even global uh, uh, scale. We look at regulatory framework, we look at governance model, we also look at the 
the the impact of of this uh, to to you know the entire society. So there are many dimensions and there are many tools. Some tools go straight to law, like regulatory framework. Some goes to Incentive measures like public sector investment. Some goes to establishing norms. For example, companies today, at least, they say that there are norms and processes they do through legal and policy to look at how they roll out product. And as researchers, we also have norms like review process, whether it's human subject or、um, mm-hmm. you know AI ethics review. But there is also responsibility. One of the most important responsibility for all of us is actually education, whether it's self education or to help educate the society. Because I think in your self driving car example, it's actually really important to understand. What does self-driving cars, L4 driving, for example, do? What are the statistics of injuries and fatalities? How do they compare to, you know,、um, human driving cars? What are the impact of, you know,、um, the 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 profession, the driving profession? What about the neighborhood impact? What about environment?、Mm-hmm. All this are very nuanced. This is why I keep saying that AI discussion. AI communication should be layered, should be thoughtful. It shouldn't be hyperbolic.、Mm-hmm. Let's bring in Bob in Berkeley. Welcome, Bob.、Uh, hi,、uh, this is a great show.、Uh, a question on I think exactly what's being discussed: How do we control globally、uh, AI from capitalism? There are various forces, including capitalism. Uh, including bad actors who want to use it to their own advantage.、Mm-hmm. So, I, yeah, I, how do we do it globally? <laughs> oh, that's an interesting question. You know, and I, and I think、um, w- let me put one a, a little more spin on that on that question too, which is, you know, we mention these ethical frameworks, and I think the thing I worry about, Feifei, is people can build the framework, but then when there's eighty billion dollars on the table. Do they actually go by the framework, or did they just <laughs> go for the eighty billion dollars? You know, I mean, the money that is flowing into this field that's there on the table is so big, and against it is sort of like, you know, some paper that people should follow. You know, it seems very difficult to me. Yeah, no, I I hear you, and I I hear your concern. This is why I said、um, framework norms. Regulatory measures, laws—they they come into different degree, right? You you could be highly motivated by whatever billion dollars, but there is still the boundary of law. Of course,、mm-hmm. if we don't have good laws, for example,、um, then we run into trouble. And and、uh, take FDA as an example. I'm not saying healthcare is perfect,、uh, exemplary for for laws, but after all, we have established some level of trust, like. We know, you know, we trust Tylenol, even though we don't know how Tylenol works. Even though we kn- we know that the company that makes Tylenol wants、mm-hmm. to make money, yet we still have enough of a trust、mm-hmm. as consumers to use it, right?、Mm-hmm. So, so it's it's complex. And then, you know, one of the other 
um, you know, as someone you know, who's bicultural, grew up in China and also, you know, spent your adult life in the U.S., the global part of Bob's question is really interesting, too, right? I mean, one of the refrains that I feel like I've heard from Silicon Valley is, well, we have to go as fast and as hard on AI development as possible because the Chinese are going as fast and as hard on AI development as possible. Do you see that as a healthy dynamic, if something can be changed? So, look, I definitely believe the intention of a great technology is to help people, people of all backgrounds. In fact, in today's AI development, I'm uh, very concerned that we're leaving behind the global south and and uh, people of you know traditionally underserved communities so so from that point of view i do think it's it would be healthier if there is global partnership there is you know a global effort of ai for good but i'm not a uh, expert in geopolitics and, and and so on i think it it definitely we live in a reality um, people are motivated by different things. Uh, it's very important as we have, you know, we go back to the first question. I have learned important values of democracy, of liberty, of equality in this country. And I do believe American leadership in AI is important, especially American public sector's leadership mm. in AI is very important. Yeah. You know, I guess this is a, a question Ernst writes in to say, it seems as if the premise of this conversation is that AI is actually something transformative. While machine learning for image recognition has been shown to be useful, the $80 billion generator that OpenAI has created is not particularly useful. What can ChatGPT actually do? Is it worth consuming mass amounts of money and electricity? And let me put this question to you like this, Feifei. What do you think the most transformative use of AI will be in people's lives that you yourself want to work on? Yeah, first of all, I want to push back to you saying that ChatGPT is not particularly useful. I actually think it's a great piece of technology. It's not perfect. It has a lot of issues, but I think it's actually tremendously useful uh, for a lot of work from software engineering to, you know, uh, trying to gain knowledge um, to search mm -hmm. to, you know, a lot of business case uses. Um, I don't know the inside, but from what I hear from my friends that uh, that uh, a lot of businesses, small and big, are using GPT. Sure, sure, uh, sure. So, yeah. so I do think it's very useful. In terms of what I dream of where this technology is going, couple of things. I work a lot in the industry or in the application area of healthcare and AI. I actually think this is one of the mm. most important vertical to uh, continue to benefit from modernization <laughs> as well as, uh, as uh, technology improvement. For example, um, you know, we, we work with um, ICUs and senior homes and we know that we don't have enough help mm. for our patients. We have a shortage of healthcare workers. We're, we have an even bigger shortage of caretakers. So technology can help. Might be able to help there. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, thank you so much. We've been talking with Fei-Fei Lee, Professor of Computer Science at Stanford and Founding Director of the Stanford Institute for Human-Centered AI. She's got a new memoir out, The World's I see. Thanks for joining us, Feifei. Thank you, Alexis. Fascinating uh, mind and fascinating conversation. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim.
Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.